Good evening. The White House declines executive privilege for the previous executive. How South Dakota became an international tax haven. The ignoble Nobel Peace Prize and the end of gifted and talented classes in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, October 8th, 2021. President Joe Biden won't block a tranche of documents sought by a House committee's investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol, setting up a showdown with former President Donald Trump, who has pledged to try and keep records from his time in the White House from being turned over to investigators. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The administration takes the events of January 6th incredibly seriously, as the president said, on its six-month anniversary. Uh, that day posed an existential crisis and a test of whether our democracy could survive. It was in many respects a unique attack on the foundations of our democracy. The president's dedicated to ensuring that something like that could never happen again, which is why the administration is cooperating with ongoing investigations, including the January 6th Select Committee, to bring to light what happened. As a part of this process, the president has determined that an assertion of executive privilege is not warranted for the first set of documents from the Trump White House that have been provided to us by the National Archives. As we've said previously, this will be an ongoing process, uh, and this is just the first set of documents. Jen Psaki, in August, the House committee investigating the January insurrection at the Capitol asked for a trove of records, including communications with the Trump White House. Among those events was a rally where Trump egged on a crowd of thousands before loyalists stormed the Capitol. Trump is expected to take legal action to block the release of the documents, which, if granted, would mark a dramatic expansion of the unwritten executive power. Courts have traditionally left questions of executive privilege up to the current White House occupant, though the former president's challenges could delay the committee's investigation. And a group of 136 countries set a minimum tax rate of 15% for big companies today. The move was to make it harder for corporations to avoid taxation. It's a landmark deal that President Joe Biden says leveled the playing field. By setting a floor for countries that try to attract investment and jobs through minimum taxation, the deal aims to stop firms from shopping around for the lowest tax rates. The agreement comes after four years of negotiations and the impetus of the coronavirus pandemic in recent months. But the proposed minimum tax is still well above the 23.5% average corporate tax in industrialized countries. The Paris-based Organization for Economic Development says the deal will cover 90% of the global economy. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hailed it as a victory for American families as well as international business. She calls the deal a once-in-a-generation achievement. Meanwhile, the fallout continues from last week's revelations in the Pandora Papers that 35 current and former heads of state and more than 330 athletes, politicians and officials from almost 100 countries are alleged to have invested in assets meant to duck high taxes. Among the officials is Czech Prime Minister and billionaire tycoon Andrzej Babis. He's the first person mentioned in the document to face voters. The top story in the Central European country during the election in the last couple of days are these documents alleging Babis used shell companies to purchase a $22 million French chateau in 2009. 
In reaction to the Pandora Papers leak, the European Union announced at its Strasbourg headquarters its intention to develop new tax legislation to enhance tax transparency, among other measures. In Russia, a Kremlin spokesperson described the Pandora Papers revelations as a set of quite unsubstantiated statements before defending Russian President Vladimir Putin's inner circle. According to The Guardian, a deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, allegedly a lover of Putin, invested millions of dollars in luxury real estate on behalf of the Russian leader. Meanwhile, Chilean President Sebastián Piñera commented in Santiago yesterday on revelations he, along with Dominican Republic's Luis Abinader and Ecuador's Guillermo Lasso, had, along with almost a dozen other Latin American leaders, currently been using the tax havens. Piñera says the facts mentioned in the report are not new and fully follow the law. And in an unusual development, the United States was one of the tax havens that were highlighted in the Pandora Papers, especially the states of South Dakota, where GOP presidential hopeful Christy Noem is governor, and perennial tax haven Delaware, the home state of President Biden. The files suggest the United States Midwestern state of South Dakota now rivals Switzerland, Panama, the Cayman Islands, and other famous tax havens as a premier venue for the international rich seeking to protect their assets from the authorities. A senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies is Chuck Collins. He says South Dakota has long uh, based its brand on being a tax dodger's haven. South Dakota, really starting in the 1980s, changed its laws to attract the wealth defense industry, to attract trusts and wealth. They also changed their laws to attract the credit card industry. They abolished their anti-usury laws. South Dakota governors have carried on that tradition since then. They basically do whatever the trust industry wants them to do, including changing their laws. What have we learned in the Pandora Papers? Well, we kind of knew how this worked before, but what the Pandora Papers has shown is that people from around the world, billionaires and criminals, are taking their money to South Dakota. And the secret sauce in South Dakota is you can park your wealth there. You don't have to pay taxes. You can put it in this trust that's anonymous. They don't disclose who the real beneficiaries are. And the trust rules have been changed that the trust will never terminate. It can exist forever. So you can build up a wealth dynasty there and pass it on to your great-great-great-great-grandchildren. What is a trust? Trust is a form of ownership. A typical trust has a grantor, someone who gives the money to the trust, and a beneficiary, and a trustee that oversees it. And there is like one legitimate purpose I can think of of a trust, which is let's say you have a, a child with a special needs and you want to set them up after, you, after you're gone so that they have some resources to live by. What these lawyers and wealth managers have done is they've morphed and manipulated the trust ownership structure to become a sort of mechanism to sequester and hide wealth, enable the wealth to grow tax-free in perpetuity. How do they hide the wealth? Once the wealth is in the trust, the ownership, what they call the beneficial owner, never has to be disclosed. The trust has a trustee, you know, a South Dakota trust officer. They will never say whose money it is. And this is a key ingredient of this international system. It's not just in South Dakota. All over the world, companies have changed their trust laws to protect the identity and secrecy of the super rich. Where does the IRS come into this? The IRS seems to be able to snoop around anybody. They're going to snoop around to people who make, you know, put in $600 a month into their bank account. Because they've written the laws in these states, they've written them to protect this secrecy. But 
uh, the fact that it's legal doesn't mean it's right or ethical. It just means that this powerful lobby interest group was able to manipulate the laws. The IRS has been decimated. They've lost their ability to kind of really meaningfully oversee the, the, the super wealthy. So you're right. They're more focused on like people who are using the earned income credit, low and middle income working people. You're more likely to get audited if you use that than if you're a billionaire using a, you know, exotic trust. President Biden has actually proposed, let's build and put money back in the IRS to oversee the rich. People with $600 in their bank account, that's not the rich. We should be talking about people who are moving millions, and that should be the focus of the IRS oversight. Democrat or Republican, the super rich have a lot of power over both parties, don't they? Absolutely. And although it's interesting, last year, Congress did pass something called the Corporate Transparency Act. Limited liability companies like the ones often in formed in Delaware will have to report who their real beneficial owners are to the Treasury Department. That's a great precedent. And we could go back and say, do that for trusts, make it public, rewrite the rules governing trusts so that states can't invent their own rules, create a, a basic federal standard, and invest in the oversight of the rich, not just wor- not working people. Le- you know, the Irish should leave low-income taxpayers more alone and really go where the money is. There's tens of the almost trillions of dollars of revenue being lost because of failure to enforce the existing rules on the wealthy. And Chuck Collins is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. Part of the bills we were discussing earlier, part of the bills being supported by the White House and if passed in coming weeks and months would be a measure not only strengthening the IRS, but uh, empowering the IRS to work with banks to investigate Uh, deposits of cash as low as $600 uh, so as to, uh, in the words of the people supporting that measure, uh, encourage more people to pay their taxes. Today, President Biden issued the first ever presidential proclamation of Indigenous Peoples Day, lending the most significant boost yet to efforts to refocus the federal holiday celebrating Christopher Columbus toward an appreciation of Native peoples. The day will be observed October 11th along with Columbus Day, which is established by Congress. While Native Americans have campaigned for years for local and national days in recognition of the country's Indigenous peoples, Biden's announcement appeared to catch many by surprise. Biden wrote in the Indigenous Peoples Day proclamation, Today we recognize indigenous peoples' resilience and strength, as well as the immeasurable positive impact that they have made on every aspect of American society. Balancing the issue of how the discovery of America by European explorers in the 19th century uh, should be viewed by children who were taught these issues and remember the little song about who discovered America that we all learned as children. In a separate proclamation for Columbus Day, Biden praised the role of Italian Americans in U.S. society, but also referenced the violence and harm Columbus and other explorers of the age brought about on the Americas. The The colonization of the Americas is held responsible through the deaths of tens of millions of indigenous people. And in Oslo, Norway, journalist Maria Ressa of the Philippines and Dmitry Muratov of Russia won the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize on Friday. The Norwegian Nobel Committee named the two as fighters for freedom of expression in countries where reporters have faced persistent attacks, harassment, and even murder. Among the past winners of the prize have been President Barack Obama, who rejected it with an angry speech that overturned the whole idea of peace. 
Earlier, the architect of the Vietnam War, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, responsible for the invasion and bombing of Cambodia, among other war crimes. Ressa and Muratov, though, were truly activists who have been fighting for freedom in their own way. They were honored for their courageous work and as representatives of all journalists who stand up for democracy. Reza is co-founder of Rappler, a news website that the committee noted had focused critical attention on President Rodrigo Duterte's murderous anti-drug campaign. I'm honored that the Norwegian Nobel Committee has honored me and and my fellow journalist, Dmitry Moratov, in this way. This relentless campaign of harassment and intimidation against me and my fellow journalists in the Philippines is a stark example of a global trend that journalists and freedom of the press facing increasingly adverse conditions. I hope today's Nobel Peace Prize 2021 award will remind the authorities in the Philippines, Russia, around the world of the need to respect journalists and journalists. Reza is the first Filipino to win the Peace Prize. Moratov says the prize is meant to honor numerous journalists killed uh, covering Russia's war with Chechnya. He said it's a recognition of the memory of our fallen colleagues. But activist author David Swanson, executive director of World Beyond War, says the Peace Prize was irrelevant this year. Not that the recipients didn't deserve recognition, but they were journalists and not true peace activists, the ones actually doing the work to bring a peaceful world. I have nothing whatsoever against the fine and wonderful people who got it. I take absolutely nothing away from them. I don't uh, criticize them in any way, shape or form. I'm sure they are lovely and courageous and deserving uh, and talented people, Uh, but they got a prize for journalism. And the Nobel Peace Prize has uh, gone last year to people who worked to end hunger. And in previous years, it's gone to people who worked to protect children's rights and to teach about climate change and to uh, try to alleviate poverty a little bit. And I am in favor of all of those things. And I think each of those wonderful causes should go and get its own prize. Uh, But it shouldn't be the Nobel Peace Prize. They shouldn't turn the Nobel Peace Prize when they aren't giving it to out-and-out warmongers to random good causes that don't have their own prize, uh, because this was a prize created in the will, the last will and testament of Alfred Nobel, Nobel under the influence of Bertha von Suttner to, to go to, and I quote, the person who has done the most or the best to advance fellowship among nations, the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and the establishment and promotion of peace congresses. End quote. This was to abolish war, to demilitarize, to advance peace and and global relations among nations, uh, not random good causes. Uh, I don't think there's been a Nobel Peace Prize winner in decades who would have even stood for the idea of abolishing or reducing standing armies and wouldn't wouldn't have tolerated it for a second. Uh, So these are good people. They should get prizes. They shouldn't get this prize because ending war and establishing peace is actually an important thing. Uh, And the fact that we live in a culture that won't that won't hear of it uh, and goes out of its way to give prizes meant for peace to other causes is a problem. What is the message when I think they gave it to uh, Obama when he first got elected, which shocked Obama because he did not want to get the peace prize. He had no intent. He had intention of being a warrior president in his own right. Ultimately, what is the message they're sending with this? 
I'm not sure what message they were sending to Obama other than thank you for not being George W. Bush. They got out of him the first and only thus far anti-peace Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech where he denounced the thinking of previous laureates, including Martin Luther King Jr. And they're giving a peace prize to warmongers because they, they are biased toward people in power, presidents, prime ministers. This is who they want to give the prize to. When Joe Biden, you know, the president of the nation that arms and funds and trains the, the militaries of most oppressive governments around the world, that has the biggest military, that is talking about a democracy summit and dividing the world into democracies and non-democracies, I'm sure he couldn't be happier uh, to have a couple of non-democracies getting highlighted by the Nobel Peace Prize. Who, uh, just to wrap up, who should have got the Nobel Prize in your opinion? Two days ago, an organization I direct called World Beyond War gave its war abolisher prize to the Save Sinyevina movement, uh, which is a movement of people, uh, farmers, shepherds uh, in the mountains in Montenegro that have put their bodies on the line and prevented the construction of a new NATO military base and, and training ground there and are continuing that struggle and opposing its construction anywhere else. This is, you know, this is a model for what we need to do to resist expanding militarism. Yeah, David Swanson is an activist and author. He's executive director of World Beyond War. Swanson writes the Nobel Peace Prize has developed or devolved into a prize for random good things that don't offend a culture dedicated to endless war. And in more news from Washington, former President Donald Trump's company lost more than $70 million on his Washington, D.C. hotel during his four years in office, despite taking in millions from foreign governments. That's according to documents released today by a congressional committee investigating his business. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform says the luxury hotel just a few blocks from the White House was struggling so badly that the Trump organization had to inject $27 million from other parts of its business and got preferential treatment from a major lender to delay payments on a $170 million loan. The committee said the losses came despite an estimated $3.7 million in revenue from foreign governments, business that ethics experts say Trump should have refused because it posed conflict of interest with his role as president. And look to this story because I think a lot more is going to be coming out about what was happening at that hotel in Washington and some of the other hotels that were run by the Trump organization while Mr. Trump was the president. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. After promising for more than seven years to overhaul the city's controversial, gifted and talented program, Mayor de Blasio announced major reforms today intended to address stark racial disparities in the public schools. The plan, which will eliminate the high stakes gifted admission tests and phase out separate advanced classes altogether, will largely fall to the next mayor to implement since de Blasio has only months left in City Hall. De Blasio celebrated the end of an era of judging four-year-olds based on a single test. But the executive director of Class Size Matter, Leonie Hameson, says the opposition that blocked the change during the mayor's two terms in office is on behalf of a small number of students. But the outside's impact of gifted and talented education is to increase inequality in New York City schools, already the nation's most segregated major school district. Four percent of the kids in New York City public schools um, enroll in gifted and talented programs. So, so it's a quite small percentage of the total population. There are some 
groups that feel strongly about this, but there are a lot of kids who test into the program who don't even get in because there's not enough space. There is no research backing for testing kids as young as four for giftedness. New York City is the only district in the country that does this. And it has an effect to segregate our elementary schools in that the vast majority of kids that test into the program are white and Asian, while the majority of our kids are black and Latinx. There are a lot of reasons to oppose it. Again, there's no research backing, and it segregates our schools and classrooms. Now, de Blasio promised when he was first elected that he was going to revamp the program. That was eight years ago. Um, he, his own school diversity advisory group recommended that this be revamped two years ago. The last chancellor left because he disagreed with de Blasio, who wouldn't do anything to stop the program, even when the Panel for Educational Policy decided not to approve the gifted test last year. So it's taken him eight years to do what he should have done years ago, and the reality is it'll be very easy for our next mayor, Eric Adams, to simply reverse it. Now, what de Blasio should have done is not only should he have started this process a long time ago, but he should have paired it with a proposal to lower class sizes starting in the early grades, which would be very popular and dispel some of the anger and bitterness that some people feel over this program and would make it much easier for teachers to actually provide the differentiated and accelerated instruction that they're supposedly going to be trained to do, um, which is supposed to be replacing the current gifted program to allow teachers to teach kids wherever they are, which is really difficult to do, especially when you have class sizes as large as 25 in kindergarten going up to 32 in the other early grades. He messed it up in a lot of ways. He waited too long, and he did it in a way that's just going to cause a lot of controversy and not necessarily provide the benefits that he claims. I understand what the conditions are and that often teachers in overcrowded classes, the students who couldn't keep up with the mainstream of the work were just given crayons and given a, a corner of the room to do whatever they wanted to do, and the teacher would focus on the middle. I think the answer is reducing class size. I think the research shows that teachers are far better able to reach kids where they are, and the kids who are the low performers do much better because they get the feedback that they need. And the achievement gap narrows in smaller classes. There's rigorous research to show this that's over 20 years old. Um, I think it is very difficult to teach large classes with kids at very, very different levels. The, the problem with tracking or having gifted and talented or separating kids according to their ability is that that widens the achievement gap. The kids who are, you know, far behind fall even further behind. And I don't think in a system that you want to be made more equitable with more opportunities for all kids, no matter what their levels of achievement, you don't want to make that worse. 
Leonie Hamson is executive director of Class Size Matters. Many details about the plan were still to be determined. City Hall says a final plan would be rolled out in November, right around the mayoral election that Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams is expected to win with ease. Under the status quo, about 2,500 incoming kindergartners per year scored high enough on the optional exam to win a spot, going on to spend their elementary school years in separate classrooms and schools. Under the new rules, that test will be permanently eliminated. And a damning report released by the city's Department of Investigation has found Mayor Bill de Blasio didn't reimburse the city for his security detailed travel expenses during his presidential campaign totaling over $300,000. The report found that NYPD resources and personnel assisted in helping de Blasio's children, Chiara and Dante de Blasio, move belongings and travel. De Blasio called the report unprofessional and says there were a number of inaccuracies. He also criticized the investigation for not interviewing security experts like NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism John Miller, who he says are in charge of these decisions. Miller has said the police department logged 308 separate threats involving the mayor, including 33 that referenced his family and 14 specifically against his children. And finally, when Carnegie Hall reopens on Wednesday night after more than 18 months in the dark, it'll be filled with music by New York composer Valerie Coleman, whose work was inspired by the times, specifically the nightly ritual that became music to the ears of so many essential workers at the height of the pandemic, the 7 p.m. cheer. It inspired Coleman, an acclaimed New York flutist and composer. She said, because my heart was clanging those pots and pans with everyone, so it hit the core of who I am. And now, 7 o'clock Shout will be the very first music heard inside Carnegie Hall since it closed abruptly in March 2020 because of the pandemic. The work will be performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra. Coleman says the music reflects both the isolation of quarantine and that nightly outburst of support. And that's some of the news for Friday, October 8th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>